And so let's turn our Bibles, please. Turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> this is the moment in the Gospel of Mark that comes directly on the back of Jesus being proclaimed as the Christ. It's the first time in the book where Peter, on behalf of the disciples, is explained to Jesus, we know who you are. And we know that you are the Christ. And immediately then Jesus explains what that means, what it's going to mean for him to suffer as the Christ. And then in chapter 8, verse 34, he then explains what it's going to mean for us to follow him as Christ. This is what he says, one verse, chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it a divine reality check. And let's pray and then let's get into this word together. Lord, I do thank you for the clarifying power of your word. I thank you that it does check us into reality and call us not to what we perceive things to be, but what actually is. Lord, I thank you that truth is what will set us free. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do this morning? Would you open the eyes of our heart to behold Christ and him crucified? And Lord, would we truly be changed and inspired and invigorated by what we see? In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I was doing in the January holidays is reading books. And one book I read was a book, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. If you have any type of interest or passion in global missions, I would encourage you to read it. It is a fantastic book that will inspire the depths of your soul. And in the book, he has many illustrations of men and women who have clearly just given their lives to serving Jesus, who had given their lives and all that meant to following him as Lord and Savior. And one such story is that of an African Maasai warrior named Joseph. Joseph was a man that after he became a Christian actually became a good friend of Dr. Billy Graham. And this is Joseph's story told by John Piper. One day, Joseph was walking along one of his local, hot, dirty African roads, and he met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and the power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up in the way his had. Yet to his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground, while the women beat him with thick strands of barbed wire. He was then dragged from the village and left to die in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a waterhole, and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from people he had known all his life, and he decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. 
So after rehearsing the message Jesus he had first heard, he then decided to go back and share his faith once again. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him, unconscious, from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. And yet again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised and scarred, and determined to go back. He once again returned to the small village. And this time they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. And as they flogged him for the third and probably last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ, the Lord, and all that he had done for them. And before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the women who were beating him begin to weep. This time, when he awoke, he awoke in his own bed. And the ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to hell. For the entire village had come to Christ. You know, you cannot help when you hear Joseph's story or stories like Joseph's. You cannot help but be inspired and provoked and humbled by what their example really is, isn't it? Joseph was all in for Jesus. Whatever that meant to the max, even if it cost him his life, he was all in for Jesus. Jesus had changed his life. And so all he wanted to do was tell everybody else about him. Whatever that meant. You cannot help but be encouraged and provoked by his example, his courage and his boldness and his passion for Jesus, whatever that meant. And yet, when you examine his life and when you examine his divine worldview, you also can't help but be challenged. But just want to contrast that type of life is to what so much of Christianity is in the West. Don't you think? It's so different. And one of the reasons why there is such a contrast today is because the prevalence in the last 40 or 50 years or so of the health and wealth gospel, or as the prosperity gospel as it's often now called. See, one of the worst and most grievous things to ever come out of the United States by a long way was the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth gospel. It was this teaching that is still prevalent today That if you follow Jesus and you give your money to Jesus and you serve in the church, then there's a fruit, you will be healthy and you will be wealthy. And if you're not, you just name it and claim it. You name it and you experience faith and you name it and claim it and as a result, you will be healthy and wealthy. Well, sadly, over the last 40 and 50 years, this has spread like wildfire around the globe. I saw it firsthand about 20 years ago. The very first trip I went on was a trip to Zambia. What was immediate apparent was two things. Number one, what was immediate apparent is they are a poor country. There was a lot of poverty. Kids, probably about four or five years old, just sitting on the side of the road trying to sell badges and things like that to try and raise any money they could for their family. Such great poverty. And yet what was also apparent was the presence of the health and wealth gospel. Because as you drive along the road, there is billboard after billboard after billboard of billboard of evangelists from America telling them, tune into us, give money to us, you'll be healthy, and you'll be wealthy. 
God wants to bless you a hundredfold. Just give to Him. Come on, touch the television screen and then make a donation and He will heal you. Touch the television screen and make a donation. He will supply all your needs. It is sad. It is grievous. It makes you angry when you see it. Poor people taken advantage of in this way. Poor people with a lack of health and a lack of wealth that so desperately wanted that they'll believe anything. And yet all the time ripping them off and claiming that God is some type of genie in a lamp that's just there to help them with health and wealth. It's so sad and so not true and so not what the Bible teaches. And you would think that here in the West, where there is a lot of health and wealth, that some type, some type of gospel like this would never get any traction. But sadly it does. It's just inverted. See, here in the West, we grow up with health and wealth. The vast majority of people grow up and spend their life healthy, and if they're not healthy, they keep going back to hospital where they can get all their needs cared for. And the reality is we are wealthy. If you are sitting in this room and you live in Sydney, you are stinking rich compared to the rest of the world, without any shadow of a doubt. And here's the problem. Here's how the health and wealth gospel affects us. We grow up in health and wealth, and then we wrongly assume that if I just give myself to the church and I serve, then what will that mean? What that will mean is I will be healthy and I will be wealthy, right? If God really loves his children, that would be my story. As I serve him, as I give to him, I'll I'll probably just live for like ever and I'll be wealthy. And that's what God will want for me, right? It's exactly the same gospel. Health and wealth gospel. It is anathema before the Lord. It is false before the Lord. It is heresy. And that's one of the many reasons that I so give thanks to God for Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Because what we have here, my friends, is a divine reality check. What does it mean? What does it actually mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it actually look like? What should we expect? Pay attention. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow he doesn't say, listen, you want to follow me? Great. Well, embrace comfort. Embrace health. It'll all be sweet. It'll be a day out at the beach. No, he makes it clear. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Take a big cross and follow me. And my friends, it's a divine reality check that I believe the Lord wants us to examine this morning and stir us in afresh. Following Jesus will not always be easy. There will be many things attached to it that will actually be very hard and very difficult. But it is also the greatest joy ever told. When you follow Jesus, he will satisfy your innermost being with a satisfaction that is indescribable. And you will truly want it. But we must understand it will not always be easy. You know, it would have been so easy in preparation for this week to simply begin the series that we are beginning next week. Next week, for seven weeks, we're going to be doing a series on our gospel, DNA, and culture. And I'm really excited about it. We've been planning it for some time. It would have been easy just to crack on with that. But I really felt the Lord arrest me in this text because I believe he wants us to take this divine reality check, that we may be stirred, that we may be equipped, that we may be 
helped, given the prevalence of the health and wealth gospel that is out there, that we may see the truth of Scripture and that the truth of Scripture may set us free. What does it mean then to follow Jesus? Well, three things that I want us to see from this text. Number one, I want us to see that following Jesus is going to involve difficulty. And so it will. So one of the greatest metaphors in the Bible that is often used to describe the Christian life is the metaphor of a race. Indeed, a great race that we're all signed up for when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's one of the most beautiful and inspiring pictures anywhere in the Bible. When you became a Christian, you were signed up for the greatest race of your life. You are standing in the middle of a coliseum, and the crowd around you are cheering and clapping you on, keep going. It's all the men and women of old that have seen the faithfulness of God and have finished their races. And they're calling to you, don't stop, keep going. And so looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that is what we're called to do. It's such an important metaphor and analogy. We see Paul, in many of his letters, drawing on the same metaphor of a race. As of Philippians 3, verses 13 to 14, for example. He says, brothers... I do not consider I have made it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, examine the word sovereign grace. When you think about the reality that this Christian life is a race, here's the reality. It's going to take training, it's going to take running, it's going to take enduring, it's going to take striving, it's going to take laying aside, it's going to take straining forward. What you learn by all these words is this ain't going to be easy. It's not a fun run for Jesus, it's not a dawdle in the park. It is not the health and wealth gospel. It is going to be difficult. And it is that same reality that Jesus makes crystal clear to us right here in this text when he says, listen, do you want to follow me? Great. Then take up your cross. The cross. The universal emblem for suffering and pain and shame. You want to follow me? Well, that's what it's going to mean. And you know, here in the Western world, in our Western Christianity, I think that is something that we really do need to hear again and again and again and again. Is it not? See, in Western Christianity, we are often fine with the Savior bit. That sounds great. It's going to hugely benefit my life. To know that Jesus died for me and because of what he did on the cross for me that I'm forgiven of my sin and redeemed. 
and adopted into the very family of God and heaven is my home. Sweet, that's amazing. And we're even relatively okay with the following bit. I mean, Jesus seems like a lovely man. So to follow him, that sounds pretty cool. I'm in for that. I mean, the very foundation of our faith is to follow him as Lord and Saviour, is it not? That's what it means to actually become a Christian. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was in a part of a family of churches that really just taught you, you know, do you want to become a Christian? Oh, that's good. Just invite him into your heart. Okay, that's what I'll do. I've invited him in. There you are, you're a Christian. What does that mean? What does it mean to invite him into your heart? Now, the Bible's clear, Romans 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose again, then you will be saved. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, understanding that he died in your place, you receive him as your saviour, and understanding that he's the Lord, the master, the king of kings and lord of lords, and you get on your knees then and commit your life to following him, then you will be saved. That's what true faith is. It is faith and understanding. Jesus is God. He's the king. He died in my place. I'm all in. And I think in Western Christianity, we're fine with the saviour bit and we're reasonably okay with the following bit because Jesus seems like a wonderful man. But this cross bit, this idea of taking up your cross and following him, that's where we begin to balk a bit, do we not? Training and enduring and pressing on. Sounds a bit intense. Striving and straining forward. I think I might find a church that, you know, they got a spat of coffee, you know. Our Western Christianity is so different. And this idea then of taking up a cross and following Jesus can be so hard for us to comprehend and in any way want to do. One of the main reasons why it is so hard for us to want to do is because we really do love comfort. Sovereign grace, we really love comfort. One of the best things you can do is to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I love comfort. Because you do. And I do. I remember a number of years ago, Emma and I went to a hotel for a night. It had been a long year. And so I treated my wife, which really means I'm treating myself but taking it with me. I treated my wife to a night in the hotel and we got there and we're like, what should we do? And Emma said, we should go out for a coffee. She loves going out for coffee. I don't even drink coffee, but we'll do a coffee. That sounds really good. Went out for a coffee, had a lovely time, spent the afternoon swimming in the pool and in the jacuzzi. I was living it up. This is wonderful. And then in the nighttime, we got dressed up and we went out for a meal. It was the best of times. And I remember during that meal, I must have just had a David moment, which means I'm off with the fairies. And Emma's like, hey, whoa, what are you thinking? And I just looked at her and I said, love, I'm just thinking, this is so where I belong. These are my people. We should do this more often. And she did what you just did in that moment. She starts laughing at me. And then I start laughing, realize what's actually just come out of my mouth. I mean, you talk about out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do I mean? It's where I belong. What a stupid thing to say. But I love comfort. I just love comfort. This is great. And my friends, there's nothing wrong per se with enjoying the good gifts that God gives us. The problem comes though when we start to smuggle comfort into our walk with the Lord and we assume and expect that as I follow him, comfort will be what I receive. That if he really loves me, 
I will be healthy and I will be wealthy. If he really loves me, he'll be there to give me a hug every day of my life. You see what that is? It's the health and wealth gospel. It's the prosperity gospel. It is heresy. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in this verse. And the call of Jesus Christ to your life. Listen, do you want to follow me? He doesn't say, then let it you take, come here, take up your comfort. Come here, follow me, it's going to be sweet. No. You want to follow me? Take up your cross. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's a divine reality check. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in the word cross. Brett McCracken in his book Uncomfortable says the following. He says, The Christian faith has been centered upon an emblem of suffering and shame. And accordingly then, the shame and reproach of the cross is fundamental to our journey. Therefore, to be a Christian is to accept the discomfort of way of life inspired and empowered by a cruel, rugged old cross, a symbol of scorn and degradation. In the ancient world, a cross was not something decorative to cross-stitch or wear, diamond-studded around one's neck. It was a barbaric method of slow death, typically reserved for the worst of criminals among the despised people groups. Crucifixion was used by Greeks and Romans to inflict maximum pain and humiliation on deserving criminals. Listen. And now, the way of the cross is ours to follow. My friends, make no mistake, to follow Jesus is not always going to be easy. In fact, I would argue it's probably going to be difficult. It's not always going to be easy to sacrifice autonomy, to sacrifice your life. But when you became a Christian, that's what you did. You said, Jesus, not about me. My life is now yours. I take you to be my king and Lord. Whatever you want in your word, I'm in. It's a giving up of autonomy. We actually become a slave of Christ. We understand every breath I breathe, every move I make, everything I do, I'm all in. You control my life. I've been bought with a price, purchased by your blood, and so I am yours. But that ain't always easy. It's not always easy to sacrifice preferences and comforts. Desires that may not even be bad desires, but you realize because God is calling you this way, you're going to have to give them up. But that ain't always easy. It's not always easy to sacrifice time and energy and resources to give of your whole life to serving Jesus. It's not always easy. And folks, make no mistake, as we'll see before the end of this message, it is totally worth it. There is abounding joy in following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. But make no mistake, reality check. It's going to be difficult. And 1 Peter, he simply says, you know, why are you surprised when suffering comes your way? Literally, why are you surprised? Do you know why we're surprised? Because we've been taking into the health and wealth gospel and thought, if I really love Jesus, I follow Jesus, this should be great. You believed a lie. No one's surprised when we suffer, when we realize part of what I signed up for is to take up my cross and follow him. My friends, as we take this divine reality check together, first thing we must understand is following Jesus is going to involve difficulty. 
But that's not all. Number two, following Jesus is going to involve denial. That's what he says, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny. You know, that's like a, a bad word to a millennial, isn't it? Deny. The culture of Sydney's talk about denial. You're like, why would I ever deny anything? Why would I do that? You see it in the gender debate. You see it in the sexuality debate. Why would I ever deny? This is how I feel. It must be real. It must be how I'm going to gain true happiness. When you hear about the word deny, your mind instantly goes, or mine does, to words like stoicism and abstinence, and to be quite frank, joylessness. The assumption is, if I spend my life denying things, I will be one sad, sad man. I'll be sitting as a monk in a monastery somewhere, enjoying nothing. Is that what it means to deny yourself? Is that what he's talking about? No. When you actually understand what he's talking about, you realize what Jesus is doing here is giving us one of the most loving and merciful and life-giving calls found anywhere in the Bible. Because what he's calling us to deny is the desires of the old flesh. The desires of the old self. Desires of indwelling sin. Why? Well, because your sin is always guilty of false advertising. It promises so much to you. It explains to you, listen, come here, we'll do you good. It'll be sweet. This is where true joy is. And Jesus looks at you back in the eye and says, that will not satisfy at all. Deny yourself. And come and follow me. See, in the Bible, we learn that as Christians, we are no doubt free from the power and penalty of sin. That's a great joy and a great reality of the Christian faith. Sin no longer has dominion over you. The power to sin, boom, has been broken. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no penalty anymore for you. But its presence and its influence, that's still there. You're free from its power and its penalty, but you're not free from its presence and influence. And that, I think, when it's understood, is one of the most sobering and daunting realities of the Christian life. When you became a Christian, you became born again. The Spirit of God came into you. You're a new creation. It's wonderful. That new creation wants to follow Jesus. But here's the bad news. The old self is still in there. Vinny, the car salesman, he's still in there. And you battle him all the time, do you not? There's that battle. I want to do good. I don't know. I don't quite like that. There's a battle that goes on. And that's going to be going on until Jesus returns or you go be with him. And one of the daunting realities is that if you give in to that battle, you are in grave, grave, grave danger. See, Ravi Zacharias says it this way. He said, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And how, how true that is. Sin never delivers ad advertising. It is guilty of false advertising. It pulls us in and says, listen, come over here. Half a poison pill won't kill you. 
This will make you happy. This sexual immorality, this lust of the eyes, this desires of the flesh, just go ahead. It'll be fine. That's where the action is. That's what's going to bring you true joy. And yet in actual fact, as one pastor says, evil does taste good. But take note, evil always leads to nausea and vomiting. And so it does. It promises so much, but it delivers nothing. It's a mirage. It promises lights, but when you walk through the door, what you receive is darkness and entrapment. And you wonder how you got there. Hebrews 3, I think, outlines this so well. The writer to the Hebrews says it this way. In Hebrews 3, verse 13, listen to the word of God. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Why? Here's why. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin, my friends, it is deceitful. Sin deceives us in numerous ways. Sin likes to help us think that it's not even there. It's just part of you. It's just no big deal. It's just part of who you are. It's not really sin. And even when you become aware of it, you know, I think I'm doing things, I'm practicing things that aren't in the Bible. Sin then helps us think, but you need it. You're not going to be happy following that. This is where the action's at. Come, be with me. You'll do you good. And listen, half a poison pill won't kill you. It'll be okay. Don't think of it about it. It's not really a big deal, right? But sin always fails to deliver as advertised. And in fact, it takes you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, cost you way more than you wanted to pay. And one of those expressions is the reality that sin, when it is continually practiced, it actually hardens the soul. Hardens. And I would have to say, I've been a pastor for 20 years, I've seen this movie many, many, many times. And it doesn't happen quickly because then people would be perceptive to it. It happens gradually. Gradually. We go and sin in a certain area because we think it's going to make us happy and it doesn't always start off as that big a deal. But we keep giving ourselves to it. And before you know it, you're less affected by the content of worship Singing doesn't have the same delights as it once did. You don't feel the Lord in the same way. There's a diminished appetite to spend time in the Word, to spend time with God. You just don't feel it in the same way. In fact, even being around the people of God and the church and gospel communities, it's just not attractive in the way it once was. And in fact, your conscience that was once so sensitive to sin, it's not so sensitive at all anymore. It's been a long time since you confessed sin. In fact, you don't even like to think of it as sin anymore. And you're certainly not that sorrowful about it. And actually, over time, if you're honest, you've grown completely unamazed by grace and completely unamazed even by Jesus. He just doesn't dazzle you in the way you did. And you wonder how you got there. Here's how. You've been deceived by sin. And your soul is being hardened. It is horrible. And I've seen that movie many, many times. And so how kind of the Lord then to give us this merciful and loving denial. 
as he calls us, listen, you want to follow me? Then take up your cross and deny yourself. Why deny myself? Because that stuff ain't going to do you any good. It's going to consistently deliver as, it's going to not deliver as it's advertised. If you give yourself to this sin, it will not give you what you promised. It will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer wanting to stay, cost you more than you wanted to pay. So take up your cross, deny yourself, leave that, and come follow me. And my friends, we must understand who it is that's calling us to do that. It's Jesus, the true life giver. In John chapter 10, verse 10, this is what we read. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is the one who's calling us. He's aware that, listen, the thief comes to kill and rob and destroy. You want to keep sinning? You want to keep opposing me? That's all it's going to do. It's going to lead to death and destruction and sorrow. Don't do it. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because as you follow me, you'll receive life and that in abundance. Do you see, church? This is a wonderful, caring ministry of denial. Because what is on offer is not the despondencies of sin, but the delights of being with Jesus and truly being satisfied in him. And that's the third thing that it means to follow Jesus and that we can understand from this text. Number three, following Jesus is going to be totally worth it. And so it is. It will involve difficulty, It will involve denial, and it will be totally and utterly worth it. And one man that I think displayed that walk and indeed this experience then so well was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul truly took up his cross and denied himself and followed Jesus, did he not? He gave his whole life to Jesus. And the placard over his life then, in Philippians 1 verse 21, is simply this. What do I experience? What do I feel? Well, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said that and wrote that with a smile on his face, the biggest smile you've ever seen. For to me, well, it's to live is Christ. It's to know Christ and to please Christ and to be with Christ. And to die, well, that's the gain because it's to really, truly go be with him. I can't decide which one's better. That's the way it's written before the Lord. For to live is Christ. I mean, in Psalm 16, verse 11, we read, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's beautiful. It's a promise of Scripture. And then in Psalm 37, verse 4, we have then an invite to each and every one of us to come then and delight ourselves in the Lord. Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He gave his life to spending time with God in his word. He gave his life to spending time with God in prayer. He gave his life to spending time with God in worship. He was totally besotted with Jesus. And what was the fruit? Here's the fruit. It says in Philippians 3 verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost, everything, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, oh, it's beautiful. The Apostle Paul knows Jesus Christ. He knows him. He doesn't just know about him. He knows him. He experiences him. 
He knows him through the word. He knows him through prayer. He knows him through worship. And he's besotted with him. I've counted everything else as lost. I don't want anything else in my life. Because I found Jesus. He's the secret of contentment. He's all I need, all I want. See, the fruit of denying yourself and following Jesus is to experience what Paul is saying here, to live is Christ. Was it always easy for Paul? Seriously? No. Shipwrecked, stoned a few times, left for dead, whipped many times, been in prison. And then what does he say? To live is Christ. I'm so besotted with Jesus. Oh, I suffer? Yeah, I do. They're kind of just light and momentary, really. Light and momentary? Yeah, they're just light and momentary. Because, you know, I'm going to live maybe 80 years, and then I'm going to enjoy Christ for 80 millennia at least. Oh, my, these are light and momentary. But more than that, I, I get to know Christ. I really know him. And in him, I found the secret of contentment. All my heart wants after is Jesus. My friends, if we too deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, it is that same life and abundance that Paul was experiencing that I believe you will experience as well. And there are some things you can read about in a textbook and it doesn't make any difference. You have to experience it to know what Paul is talking about. And what that takes is taking up the cross and denying yourself and following Jesus. My friends, there is true abundant life on offer to you now. And that abundant life isn't health and wealth. It is knowing Christ. Genuinely knowing Christ. The one who will be the sum of everything you ever imagined and give you all that you need. Now my friends, you can experience that whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a missionary out in the field. Whether you're an employee in a workplace or a teenager at school, whether you're a retiree who's growing older or a 20-something still at university. If you just take up your cross and deny yourself and follow Jesus, you will find in Jesus the sum of all that you'd ever been hoping for. Because he is the author of life. To live is Christ, then Paul tells us. And to die, well, that's to gain. My friends, it will be. Because the moment when we die will be the moment where this pilgrimage has come to an end. The moment we die will be the moment where we experience a true citizenship that has already been given to us in heaven. And the moment we die is the moment we get to see Jesus. One of my favorite authors when it comes to the issue of heaven is a man named Randy Alcorn. And in his wonderful book, Edge of, Edge of Eternity, he paints a picture of what it's going to be like, maybe, to actually see Jesus on this day. And through this novel, then, he paints it through the close of this man's pilgrimage. This is what he saw. The army began to sing. Perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million. I added my voice to theirs and sang the unchained praises of the king. Only for a moment did I hear my own voice. Amazed to detect the increased intensity of the whole, one voice, even mine, made a measurable difference. But from then on, I was lost in the choir, hardly hearing my voice and not needing to. 
As we sang to the gathered throngs of heaven, the sheer power of their voices, our voices, nearly bowled me over. Then suddenly the multitudes before us sang back to us and our voices were drowned out by theirs. We who a moment earlier seemed to be the largest choir ever assembled now proved to be the only the small worship ensemble that led the full choir of untold millions now lost to themselves. We sang together in full voice to him who made the galaxies, who became the lamb, who stretched out on the tree, who crossed the chasm, who returned the lion, forever be praised. The song's harmonies reached out and grabbed my body and my soul. I became the music's willing captive. The galaxy sang with us the royal song. It echoed off a trillion planets and reverberated in a quadrillion places in every nook and cranny of the universe. It blotted out all lesser lights and brought a startling clarity to the way things really were. Our voices broke into 32 distinct parts. And instinctively, I knew which of them I was made to sing. We sing for joy, the work of your hands. We stand in awe of you. It felt indescribably wonderful to be lost in something so much greater than myself. There was no audience, I thought, for a moment. For audience and orchestra and choir, well, they all blended into one great symphony. One grand assembly of rhapsodic melodies and powerful sustaining harmonies. But wait, there was an audience. An audience so vast and all-encompassing that for a moment I'd been no more aware of it than a fish is of water. I looked at the great throne and upon it sat the king, the audience of one. The smile of his approval swept through the choir like fire across dry wheat fields. When we completed our song, the one on the throne stood and raised his great arms and clapped his scarred hands together in thunderous applause, shaking ground and sky, jarring every corner of the cosmos. His applause went on and on and on, unstopping and unstoppable. And in that moment, I knew with unwavering clarity that the king's approval was all that mattered and ever would. My friends, what a moment it's going to be when we see Jesus Christ in the flesh, don't you think? What a moment it's going to be when this pilgrimage comes to an end. And the truth is, you never know when that is going to be. I got a call just a couple of weeks ago when I was on my family holiday to let me know that Wilbro Chanda, our Zambian pastor and our main guy in Eastern Africa, had been taken to hospital with some breathing difficulties. On the Sunday night, he died. He's home. And we can only imagine what he is experiencing now in the heavenly places. But it was just another moment, understanding. I had just spoken to him the month before, and now he's gone. We all think we've got years and years and years. None of us ever know how long we've got. And so I thank God for this wonderful divine reality check. It is so easy, given the prevalence of the health and wealth gospel, to think that's what it is. That if I follow Jesus, I'll be healthy, I'll be wealthy. My life will be like one giant hotel room. Well, no, my friends. Following Jesus is far more than that. Following Jesus is all about coming after him and denying yourself and taking up your cross and following. 
It won't always be easy. It will involve denial. And it will be totally worth it. So may this be our story. And may all glory go to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way that you direct our eyes, your children, onto you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity of Mark 8, verse 34. I thank you for the way that it speaks louder than our culture often suggests. Lord, did you give us eyes to see it, not only visually in our faces, but in our hearts? And would we fix our eyes on following you in 2021? Would you be the apple of our eye? Would we copy Paul and imitate Paul by sitting at your feet and worshipping you and truly knowing you? And would the cry of our hearts then honestly be to live as Christ and to die as gain? I cannot choose. Lord, may it be the joy of our hearts to follow you and may it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.